even if you win the negotiation, and it blows me away that we still negotiate for cars, that the second you drive that thing off the lot, you've lost two to $5,000 in value simply by the fact that you took a car from being quote new to used. So we came to the realization that the place that we could create value and allow people to get great vehicle, but at a reasonable value and price was in the used space. But the problem with used is you're like, am I going to get a lemon? Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. The most effective industry disruptions are born from an unmet consumer need. And there's no such thing as innovation for innovation's sake. Without a firm grasp on the needs, desires, and real customer problems, there is no change. Today's guest has an intimate awareness of this because he's witnessed it throughout his own career. Toby Russell is the co-founder, board director, and strategic advisor of Shift, a company that's on the mission to simplify the process of buying used cars. I sat down with him to hear his take on the key ingredients of a successful industry disruption and why some innovations stick and others just don't. He also shares some top predictions for the auto industry in the coming years. Enjoy the conversation. Toby, thanks for joining me today. Hey, it's great to be on with you. I appreciate you having me. You have a a wonderful series of how do we break existing industry history, you know, going back to the taxi business and then certainly in the pre-owned car business. I tried to do this myself with the real estate business a couple of years ago on the consumer side and realized that sometimes the greatest technology and the most fabulous business plan um, and all the right money behind you can't change consumer behavior fast enough. So how have you seen the consumer behavior uh, impact what you've been trying to do both on the taxi side and then most specifically on the side with Shift? So it's a great question, Paul. And I think that um, folks talk a lot about the idea of disrupting an industry. And I, I think that I usually steer the folks I advise and the teams that I run to focus in on something that I think is the core of how you do that. And that is, what are the real user needs that you're trying to meet? Because the disruption is about finding those user needs and then coming with a novel technical solution to meet those needs. So it can be the case that you get too far out ahead of consumers, i.e. that you're using a technical solution that's like kind of beyond what people are ready for. But by and large, you'll find that there's like an early adopter group that is interested in that, and then you can grow from that base. I think the danger that one faces is if you're not actually honed in on those consumer needs, and you're bringing a novel technical solution that doesn't solve a need, at which point you're like, I'm ahead of the market. And it's like, no, you just, just don't have market fit. You've fallen in love with yourself instead of the problem you're trying to solve, which is one of the greatest product management things ever, right? Fall in love with the problem. Don't fall in love with your own particular solution. So how did you know when you had that on the pre-owned car side of things, right? When you think about, my wife and I were at Home Depot this weekend, and you know she had to touch the wall covering that she wanted to acquire. And that was, you know, $40, not necessarily buying a five-year-old car. So how do you, how did you find that path forward? Um, and what do you, what do you think are the things that will make the consumer behavior change in that sense? So there's a lot of different changes that we put in place at Shift to transform the experience. And fundamentally, it went from being one that was designed around the needs of the dealer. Uh, you go to them, you have basically the inventory that they decide to bring to you. Uh, you spend hours and hours in a back room trying to not get sold stuff you don't want, et cetera. Um, and it was just sort of a reviled experience. And people would tell us, well, it was like terrible. Uh, you know you're onto something when customers come out saying, my gosh, that was amazing. 
I just, the problem with your company is nobody knows about it. <laughs> and you're like, hey, that, that's interesting. You should tell your friends. And so word of mouth was our number one growth channel. The two things that I say that we did that made, made a pretty significant transformation. Uh, the first is we've figured out what are the best cars in nature. Like the core problem is that people say, I need a new car. But if you go to buy a brand new car, you're basically going to have a terrible value. And the reason is, even if you win the negotiation, and it blows me away that we still negotiate for cars, that they actively price discriminate. And the people who lose that tend to be people who are new at car buying, folks who are not white men, and a bunch of badness there. But even if you win that, the second you drive that thing off the lot, you've lost two to $5,000 in value, simply by the fact that you took a car from being, quote, new to used um, by driving it off that lot. And that is a terrible value prop. It's a total trap. So we came to the realization that the place that we could create value and allow people to get great vehicle, but at a reasonable value and price was in the used space. But the problem with used is you're like, am I going to get a lemon? I don't know. I can't, I can't tell whether this car is going to be good or not. Is it going to be like a rental car that was driven tens of thousands of miles? And I'm not sure what's going on, but it seems good and it looks nice, but then it has all kinds of mechanical problems down the road that I can't possibly judge. And so what we began to discover was a car that someone else is driving right now, typically that they bought new, and you end up with like one owner, no accidents, strong options package, but like 10 to 12,000 miles per year is kind of what you'd want. The thing is, those cars are pretty rare in nature because somebody else is driving them. So the first thing we built to enable that was a peer-to-peer exchange. Uh, we would take cars from people to people, and the idea was to cut out the middleman. So that's the supply side, is creating an entire platform which involved the first real-time pricing algorithm where you can get a price online just by entering information about your car. We were, we were out, of, out ahead on that one. And a real price, not just like a, hey, theoretically, but a, an actual actual price that you would be paid for the car. What well, was the first part? And building out an entire system to enable, that was the thing. On the other side, on the buyer side, we call it, people who are buying cars, you mentioned being too far ahead of the market. One of the things that we believe people would want to be able to do is touch it, test drive the car. And so we created a novel solution for online shopping to offline purchase. And that was us bringing the car to your home and not having you committed at that point. You could test drive the car. And if you wanted to buy it, we built out a mobile point of sale where you could get financing, warranty, and complete the transaction, transfer all the money, do all the e-contracting right there on an iPad app in your driveway. And that was a first in the industry as well. And so the net of it is better products, better access, created a better experience that was built around the user. It's a fascinating point. I have a almost 16-year-old and we just bought his first car. I'm a technology guy, so I love these particular ideas. And I, I found an old line dealer who was trying the new line business model. And that was the way it was. And they immediately devolved to their old habits, right? It's the scorpion and the frog story, right? It's my nature. Yeah, it's my nature. Well, you know, we, we could bring it to you, but why don't you come in? It's a better experience if you come in. And yeah, you could your, do, do your financing, but if we're going to go any further, we're going to need you to do a credit. Like it didn't match the expectation of what they were promising in the market. So I think the idea of having a, a whole cloth approach to try to rethink it is the right way when you're going to try to do something like this. You mentioned a really important part, which is, you know, how do you try to marry the online and the offline? And it would seem in this business that that could add a significant amount of cost to trying to do this, whether you are moving cars around, whether you're the, the labor of driving people out and delivering and, and the expense to having those things on the road. How did you guys manage that into the business model? Or what was the, the thinking in terms of how you manage the consumer experience with the economic experience for you guys? 
thought the idea was that we would look more like Amazon than like, say, Nordstrom's. We wouldn't have high price retail real estate in, in sort of prime locations. But instead, we built out what we call hubs. They're large storage and reconditioning facilities from which the cars could be moved and run. And the philosophy was that over time, we would get to a mix, a full omni-channel experience. And that is, if a customer wanted to come to a hub, think like going to Costco to shop for the thing, you could do that. If a customer wanted to order a car from a hub and have it delivered directly anywhere in the country, you could do that. And if a customer relatively near a hub, like within an hour or two of that thing, uh, wanted a car brought to them to test drive, we could, we could support that as well. In the beginning, we started with the third thing because we knew that was going to be the hardest thing to build out in a true omni-channel experience, built that, and then added the other two. And so the blended mix of going where the customer wants and doing what the customer wants, on average, is good, good value and good economics. It's not all just the, just the first thing that we led with, but we knew that we needed to lead with that. If we couldn't get that right, and we couldn't actually deliver on that, uh, the other things weren't going to come about. And then you looked at how you built the business in a way that you were accepting of probably lower margins at the beginning because of that way, knowing that if you attracted the right sort of scale, it would all work out in the end. That's right. And, and what you see is steadily increasing what we, we call like gross profit per vehicle or GPU, uh, steadily increasing GPU over, over the course of building a thing out. Uh, because as you scale and as you do more, more and more with software and you get better and better at a thing, um, your efficiency just skyrockets. Sure. Absolutely. So how important is scale in a, in a business like this? I know, you know, when you look at the way you guys have built out your distribution network, it's mostly West Coast and it seems to be selectively moving into particular different hubs. Is this something that it's, it's possible to deliver an AutoNation or a CarMax in, in the face of something like this? Or do you see this being more of a, a regional fulfillment answer? No, I think scale is a tremendous opportunity here. And there's a reason that this didn't scale in the past and it does now. The AutoNation's uh, of the world got built up as primarily regional, I think in part because it's a franchise dealer model. So what they were doing was negotiating for a certain territory with a particular brand, think like a BMW or uh, a Toyota. And so by definition, that thing had been fragmented and, re- and and broken up, both in terms of geography and in terms of brand. So it's 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 harder to get scale advantage in that regard. There's some there there, but there are a lot of like back of house advantages. But it, I think it's harder when you have that fragmentation of geography and brand. In used, no one had scaled because to build out a national presence involved really acquiring a lot of real estate, which meant it would be long and slow. So it had been done. CarMax did do that. Uh, they were really the primary brand in used vehicles. And they got nationwide, but it took them like 30 years. What we're seeing is with the advent of the internet and the model that we talked about, the idea you can have a hub and you can sell anywhere across the country, we were able to create super regions. And so it's not truly a national market. It's really a super regional market because like nobody would buy a Toyota Corolla from you know Washington State and ship it to Florida when there's going to be a Toyota Corolla in Washington, Florida. Like you can find a car you want within a couple hundred miles or usually within 500 miles of where you are. So what we realized is we could put together a series of super regions where we can have better selection, better experience, and easy access within that whole area for folks. And then stack those side by side across the country. Much bigger radius of serving customers than a traditional store, but that means the ability to grow and expand faster, and do it all under the under one brand, the Shift brand, which meant we were able to move to things like national advertising and scaled communication and brand building in a way that you wouldn't be able to really as easily if you're in that franchise operating under multiple brand structure. 
So as you think about the competition in something like this, is the competition just the the natural approach? We found this in the real estate business. Um, it was just just the way we've always been taught, and and this is the way my dad taught me to do it. And I'm going to teach my son to do it. Um, is it that level of is it is it the direct to consumer model when ultimately the regulators decide that yeah you could do Tesla in every single state? I live in Texas, and you can't buy a car directly from. Uh, because of the of the the dealer models, how do you see competition today and then evolving over time? It's a great question. There, in a, in in any case, when you're evolving in industry, initially your competition is well, I I'm going to do it the other way. So when we started Taxi Magic, uh, which was a push a button get a get a taxi on your phone, kind of like free Uber, uh, we would talk about how the competition was the telephone. Like people would call instead of using the device and. As soon as people got a hold of a of a first BlackBerry and then iPhone device and they could push a button, have the car come to them, see it, pay for it electronically, it was like, wow, I'm just like, there's just no competition anymore with the telephone, kind of like Google and you know the white pages. That starts out as your competition. Then people enter the space. And uh, the competition is varied. It's across the board. There's franchise dealers, independent dealers, a lot of the uh, potential competition and a huge part of the market, uh, almost 40% of used cars that are sold every year don't go through a dealer at all. It's peer-to-peer. And I think that's a sign that the system is broken and a big opportunity, but a huge space for bringing a better experience to auto exchange. So there's a ton of, I mean, like loads of competition. It's in a highly fragmented market. It's not like the, the ground travel space, like the Uber Lyft, where you see one or two winners because there's huge network effects. It tends to be a much, much bigger, much more fragmented space. Um, there are tens of thousands of dealers and um, no one controls more than like 5% of the market share. It tends to be pretty fragmented today, and so I think the the key the key thing is creating a great experience and being a destination for customers to be able to uh, get what they need. Where is the market headed? Like as you know, Shift recently announced the acquisition of Fair, uh, and that is to a place where there's both first party and third party inventory on the platform. Uh, so you can see the way Amazon evolved. At first, most of what they sold was owned and stored and controlled by Amazon. Eventually, they created uh, a marketplace and a platform where others could sell using their infrastructure and most importantly, using their customer trust because they were curating and creating a great experience. Um, I think it's highly likely that auto will be not an exception from all other retail and will go in that direction, if that makes sense, Paul. No, it makes it, it was going to be my next question about the acquisition side of things, because when you think about all the dynamics in play, um, I mean, not the least of which are the macroeconomic factors, right? When a car today costs 30% more than a car two years ago or whatever the case may be, how do you manage that? And if the management is, well, I'm going to go build this marketplace um, platform business, which is going to pull together all this other other person-owned inventory, it does have the potential of a downstream customer experience problem if it turns out that that car had unreported flood problems, or it turns out that car, you know, was a fleet vehicle and got the tar beat out of it for a few years before it ended up getting that 10 or 12,000 miles a year for a couple of years. How do you intend to look at, you know, managing that experience based upon the third party vehicles that are out there? So you can build marketplaces that are you know totally open and uncurated and not monitored, or that are uh, monitored and, and customer focused. You know, the classic analogy is the early days of the Android, uh, you know, sort of the Android app ecosystem versus the Apple app ecosystem. And it, it tended to be that users would have more trust for the Apple apps because they did intense review and they followed up and, and had, had a set of standards that they were pretty, pretty firm on. 
So I think that that is the, the way you do it is what's the philosophy you take. Do you kind of throw a thing out there and say, all right, anything goes, which might look more like a, you know, an, an open and free for all. There's ver- virtue to that. It's going to scale faster and it's going to be a lot less expensive, but uh, your quality is, is going gonna, is gonna to be a problem. And I believe that in the car industry, what you're selling really is trust, not just vehicles. Because someone's like, I can find a car. I just can't trust that it's good or trust that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a quality experience and a safe experience over the long run. So I, I think that the way you approach it is very different. And there's ways to do that in the marketplace model. You just said the two most important parts, I think, are trust and the, and, and the overall relationship that you have. And that's not a, a point in time thing where someone just buys the car. It's the how do they pay for the car? It's also downstream. How do they continue to, to keep the car in good working order over a long period of time? How do you look at the entire value chain, both within shift and then as you think about the other disruptable parts of the business? We always said that at the outset, uh, the vision for what great looks like in this space is an end-to-end customer experience. We talked about it shift. We started with the bookends of buying and selling the car and that being able to support that ownership journey and then finding and buying your next car is going to be really critical. And that, that is, I think, a huge opportunity that has not yet been realized, but will be. And uh, the reason is, and, and I would talk about this as, as, as part of like the why we did the company. When you go to buy or sell your car, you're kind of like, wow, this person has a tremendous information advantage over me. And I like, I, I don't know, like maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But that doesn't end when you buy and sell the car. If anybody's ever taken their car in and heard that you have this many, you know, centimeters or millimeters or inches left on your brake calipers. And you're like, I don't know, is that bad? Because the person who's telling me that I have this amount of extra brake pad amount is also the person who stands to benefit from it being replaced. So how do I know whether or not that's good, bad, and this is actually necessary? And, and it's a tricky business. It, it's hard. It's hard to know. It's hard to, it's hard to trust. And we think there's an opportunity throughout that entire journey that is just, that is going to be a really big one. One of the things that was most impressive when I was looking at shift is, is the, um, the, the focus that you've made, you've been able to maintain on the segmentation choices that you made, right? The five-year plus type of car, as opposed to some of the other, Hey, let's just take what we can get and try to, you know, do our best in terms of the acquisition side. How did you come up with that particular piece? I know you mentioned the, you know, one to two year versus the you know, somebody who's already owning the car, but talk a little bit more about, you know, what, what was the actual analytical rigor that went into trying to determine what that was? Did it, was it just led by what was available at the time? Or did you really make a conscious choice to say that was a, a particular part of the market that made the most sense for you guys? So we started out with what we called shift certified, and that tends to be vehicles that are either, either quite new, like one or two years old, but the sweet spot tends to be three, maybe four to eight years old. Uh, and that that's the the vast majority of what you would find on shift.com is that shift certified vehicle. And the certified means it comes with um, an extended uh, warranty and it has the whole full full inspection, et cetera. In addition to that, later on down the line, we began noticing that there were vehicles that were a little bit older or had higher miles, so eighty thousand miles plus or eight years plus. Uh, and we began saying, hey, not all of those vehicles, are gonna not should should be excluded from shift retail standard. We realized they wouldn't meet the shift certified standard, but there are real gems in there, uh, and a lot of that came from our uh, partnership with the Lithia team. Uh, Brian DeBoer and the team uh, were like, "Hey, we think there's a there there. We've had experience with this, and you guys should be looking at that. There's there's real opportunity for these great. They're scarce, but great vehicles. And so we began the difficult process of um, 
evolving, or I should say, uh, innovating with our inspection and reconditioning machine. And that is, you can find really great vehicles that have higher miles or are older, but tend to be the longer lasting and in high demand vehicles. And the reason they're in demand is they're hard to find. They're in absolute terms, low price, but they're still great vehicles. What I mean, um, I today drive a Honda CRV that I bought from Shift years ago. Uh, at the time, it was a Shift certified vehicle, so it was less than eight years. But now it would it would be considered like a Shift value vehicle, and what we call that a Shift value. And that is the thing has like one hundred and thirty thousand miles, and it has been driving well past the eighty thousand miles and doing great. In absolute terms, it's it would be relatively inexpensive to buy or sell, aside from the current supply chain issues that have driven up all prices everywhere. In a surprising way, we can talk about that. But we 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 added that second tier of shift value where we would select the gems from among older or higher mile cars that are still really great, reliable vehicles that we think our customers would really enjoy. And that turns out there's a tremendous demand for and a lot of um, a lot of uh, love for, as it were. And so we created a whole new tier of quality called shift value and offering shift value in addition to shift certified. That was non-trivial. I know it sounds easy and it's simple, but it means a quite a different process for selecting reconditioning, and then merchandising those vehicles. Is it all first party insights that you're taking to make those choices, right? I mean, my family has a couple of cars and one of them's highly reliable and one of them's highly not, you know what I mean? So how are you making the balance and determination to what makes a good value vehicle? Because it would seem that the risk for you downstream, either brand risk or, or in that warranty risk or whatever the case may be, might be material. Uh, the reality is we would stand behind all the vehicles and hear from customers. Customers aren't shy about reaching out if there's an issue. And so we had strong hypotheses on which ones would be good. And then we would test and say, hey, is that is that is that right? Uh, and we discovered that those vehicles would work out. And then that would be the box of what would fit. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but typically uh, you're, the, ones that, the ones that would come to mind are you know the considered high reliability, likely to be able to run many, many miles. You'd see things like Asian imports be up there. Um, you know, things like a, a British import, like maybe less so. <laughs> and that that's it's nothing that would come as like rocket science news that you're like, oh my gosh, will it be more likely that a Toyota will run longer than something a Range Rover or a Jaguar? So where does it go from here, right? When you think about it, it would seem to me that um that there there is a, a depth of the technical evolution that could potentially be here, both on like how do you, how do you give additional comfort and care to the customer about what they're getting into and how that's all going to work? Certainly, in terms of the business model evolution, how the technology can help to do that. But you're still also really, you know, at at the whim of shipping costs are out of control these days. Broad based inflation is out of control. Rates are going up. So somebody who's looking for a five to eight year old car is probably much more highly sensitive to rate increases in those particular cases. Like how do you, how are you trying to balance the whole thing about today and tomorrow? So I think right now we're in a strange and kind of disrupted market. Disrupted not in terms of new technical innovation, but in terms of uh, really unprecedented supply chain and vehicle cost increase. At a high level, uh, I think that is a great time. Let me, let me back that up and say, I think that is a validation of the original and core thesis. And that is we have a joking we joke, a saying where we jokingly say, friends, don't let friends buy new cars. And that's because of that that price depreciation experience. Um, like in a disrupted world, I think it really underscores the criticality of being able to reuse and recycle when it's hard to build new cars because there aren't chips for it, um, and there are wars happening that might make it even more complicated to get you know things like lithium and cobalt. 
you begin saying, wow, actually, uh, be able, the ability to reuse the vehicles that we have and elongate the use of, um, of, of all material products is uh, a really good thing. And so I think it deeply validates the, the concept of uh, re- reuse and, and, use, and the used car model being the highest value and probably the best sustainability and environmental approach. So aside from you know true technical innovation and us moving over to electric vehicles, et cetera. So at, at, at the outset, like right in the short term, um, I, I think that what the shift model is doing is is hundred percent right. And then the used car, the used car space is like the right way to, to take a thing, make it good, and then continue reusing the vehicles that we're producing. So we're producing less of them now than we ever have um, in the short run. So then that's part one. Part two is there's a much, there's a much more like a longer term, hey, how does this all play out? All that I think that um, I would get asked in funding conversations and we would talk with about folks a lot. And that is, I tend to believe that the world will go electric. So there will be huge distribution of electric vehicles going forward. That involves logistical changes uh, to how you store and then uh, support vehicles because those require a, a d- different set of needs for consumers. The second part is we're seeing autonomous vehicles. And so we get we get asked the question of, well, okay, when the world goes autonomous, do people own cars at all? And I would posit that the, the model that we see at Shift and the e-commerce transformation that's happening for auto actually is exactly how you would expect people to buy cars in a world where those cars are autonomous. What does that mean? You go online, you identify the car you want, you push a button, the thing comes to you, you decide whether or not you want to buy it. If you want to buy it, you buy it right there on your mobile device. Now you'd say, hey, I don't think there's going to be anybody owning cars in a world where you know Uber has self-driving cars, so everybody just drives, jumps in the Uber car. And I would say, yes, and Uber doesn't own its cars. <laughs> Neither does Lyft. So in a world where we have self-driving networks, which by the way, will be electric vehicles that are self-driving on networks that will come and pick you up, where exactly do we think those cars are going to come from? Now, much like Airbnb, I think we're going to see a world where those cars come from individuals. And just like Uber and Lyft today, those cars come from individuals and mini fleets and, ma- and macro fleets. So I think we're going to see a world where people are buying uh, individuals and small fleets and then big fleets are buying uh, self-driving vehicles, renting them out on rideshare networks, and oftentimes not renting them out on rideshare networks and using them themselves. And the retail model for how those cars get bought and sold to consumers looks exactly like Shift. That is a fascinating philosophical debate because you can look at the analog of the home in the, the home business right now where you've got private equity companies and, and, and big publicly traded companies like Invitation Homes that are just snapping up single family homes to, to provide a similar sort of experience. And it's not individuals as much as it is much, much, much deeper pockets to do it. And, and whether or not, you know, that sort of fleet delivery experience comes that direction or by individuals, I think it's going to, it's going to. It's going to be an interesting transition that happens over the next 10 years, I think. I think everybody really sees that, for sure. I, when I think one of the important things on that one, for what it's worth, is it's not binary. We tend to think about these things as it's going to be private equity or individuals. What I think we're seeing with networks and platforms is it's, 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 it is a non-binary solution. You have individuals who will do the thing. You'll have large uh, private equity shops that will do the thing. But what you won't see is one player owning everything. And what do I mean by that? You won't see a monolithic Uber owns all the cars because the capital required for that is it exceeds what would make sense from a network network principles um, advantage. And so what we what you end up saying is, yeah, there is consol- there is some consolidation once the thing's proven, but it's actually hard to prove a thing in the beginning with huge consolidation because the big guys won't get into it until they see it working. 
And so, um, so you see these things non-binarily evolve. And I think we're going to see people continue to want to own cars. I mean, we've been talking earlier about having kids. Uh, anybody who's had an infant and has moved a car seat from one car to another can say, you know what? I'm not going to want to like not move that thing as often as possible. <laughs> and so, uh, and there's a bunch of reasons to have, have your own vehicle, particularly if you want to you know, store stuff in it and, or have it there literally at the moment you need it to be able to go long distances, you name it, or a unique personal experience. Um, so a lot of people will continue owning their own vehicles. So I don't think individuals will be out of the business of owning vehicles anytime soon. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. So you're a, a serial entrepreneur, uh, both inside big, huge, well-funded things like governments, as well as, um, you know, doing, doing it off on, on your own. What is the one thing that, that you tried to impart to your, um, you know, people that you counsel or, or people who listen to this about being a successful entrepreneur? This is unique to me. So everybody's got to do their own thing. And I think that's probably the top thing I'd impart is, you know, live your own journey. Uh, if you look at my journey, it's not one that you would follow. It's kind of like my thing. And uh, the, the, the one thing I tend to say is I look to live a life of, to, of, of learning, earning, and serving. What do I mean? Uh, I want to be able to learn and be able to bring something to the table. I want to be able to earn to be able to provide for my family so that I'm, I'm not necessarily beholden to anyone and can make decisions uh, based on what I believe is right. And I want to be able to serve. So I, I tend to t- I take time and try and go and give back. Uh, you can do that in a lot of different ways. For, in my journey, that has been involved largely entrepreneurship. Uh, big, you know, company transformations and then time in government. Uh, but other people can do it differently. Uh, I would it coach though is uh, kind of live your own journey and, and and have an idea as to what it is that matters to you. Because once you identify what what energizes you and what matters, in my case, it's the learning, earning, and serving. Uh, you can live that, and you don't have to wonder. That's great. It's always good to have a North Star. That's for sure. So uh, you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I do uh, I do tend to, every time I end with the, la- the, the same question for everybody, which is at the end of that day, and you've, you've got a little, a little learning, a little learning, a little serving all done for the day. Uh, what do you like to listen to? I have two things I listen to. If I'm going to go and hit the gym, I like something really upbeat. And if not, I like something super chill and, and laid back. Uh, thievery corporation. I know that sounds dumb and silly, but they were a band here in the, or I should say, um, you know, a, a musical ensemble here and uh, long ago in the DC area, I kind of got into them. A friend of mine uh, turned me onto them. So I like to kind of like chill out, make some dinner and uh, listen to thievery corporation. That's a great choice. That's a great choice. Toby, con- uh, congratulations on all your success. Thanks for uh, taking the time. And um, I appreciate it. Cool. Likewise, Paul. Take care. I really enjoyed the conversation with Toby and his take on the evolution of the industry. And a few things really stood out to me. First, the successful disruption of an industry requires a thorough understanding of consumer needs. As he noted, industry disruptions are typically catalyzed by a novel technical solution that helps to fulfill a real user need in an innovative way. In other words, if the innovation a company is bringing to the table doesn't solve the need, it won't have staying power. Second, companies that prioritize a seamless, convenient, and fast customer experience will win the customer loyalty every time. He explained by offering a better products, better access, and better overall experience, Shift is converting more customers and leaving a lasting impression. Third, from its inception, Shift's strategy has involved creating a recognizable destination that consumers can depend on. By developing regional hubs across the country, they are working to unite an industry that has historically been extremely fragmented. Toby believes in the future, the auto industry will continue to move in the direction of marketplaces like Amazon does. 
and it offers a trusted platform and a highly curated experience for both buyers and sellers. Fourth, in the auto industry, you're not really selling cars, you're selling trust. And for this reason, it's important that industry leaders prioritize a careful, intentional approach when it comes to crafting relationships with their customers. Fifth, moving forward, people operating in the auto industry will need to take a multifaceted approach when it comes to meeting customer needs. Drawing on a varied toolbox of digital technologies, platforms, and solutions, companies will be better equipped to serve their customers in a way that is quick, efficient, and personalized. This lesson, frankly, can be applied to any customer service industry because there's rarely a one-size-fits-all solution for every problem. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look at some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Paul French, and I look forward to being with you next time. Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway, who believes that in order to create the most value